0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body-inclusive non-diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body-inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast, where this time I'm speaking with Safina Jabbar and Gurneet Darmi. This is a well overdue conversation about equity, inclusion and justice in dietetics, healthcare, and beyond. So I'm coming to you today and every day from Wurundjeri country in Southeast Australia. I respectfully acknowledge Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Island peoples of the many lands of the Kulin Nation and beyond as traditional owners and custodians of Australia. I acknowledge the wisdom of elders both past and present and pay my respects to the communities of today. I recognise and acknowledge that First Peoples of Australia have an ongoing and deep seated connection to land and culture and value their unique contribution to both us and the wider society. In Australia, sovereignty has never been ceded, and Australia always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I am incredibly thrilled to be sharing this conversation with you today with Safina and Gurneet as they share what justice means to them. We talk about white privilege and how it can manifest in healthcare. We talked about the calling in of Dietitians of Canada, which is the national dietetics organisation in Canada, how it came about, and current developments, and then move on to Gernit and Safina's hopes for more diversity within the profession. We also discussed the extension of Diversified Dietetics USA into Canada, the need for new health at every size of weight-inclusive frameworks to ensure consideration of race, ethnicity and culture, and how we can begin to make our practice more inclusive right now. So a little bit about my guests. So Safina Jabbar is a dietetic intern completing her master's degree in nutrition communication at Ryerson University in Toronto. After a turbulent time navigating nutrition information in her adolescence, Safina committed to becoming a registered dietitian in order to gain a deeper scientific understanding of nutrition and the body. She aims to provide a safe space for clients to discuss their goals and concerns while dispelling common myths. She's passionate about working with people to improve and maintain their wellness from an anti-diet health at every size informed approach. Safina has a special interest in, in the impact of food on well-being based on her knowledge of complex historical and institutional factors that have shaped our food landscape. Health and social inequities persist through these systems. So Safina is advocating for change through educating and empowering her fellow healthcare practitioners, local community, and national organisations to ensure a future where all people have equitable access to appropriate healthcare. Gurneet Kaur-Dhami is a Southeast Asian Sikh woman travelling between Toronto to Halifax, where she is completing a Master's in Science in Applied Human Nutrition at Mount St. Vincent University. Her emerging thesis work focuses on the experience of racialized dietitians navigating dietetics using critical race theory. Ganeet is both a researcher and social activist, as she partakes in food justice work by working on food security projects and being involved in the student food movement. As a youth leader, she hopes to further dialogue on race, reconciliation and equity beyond our kitchen tables. To find out more about what The Mindful Dietitian is about, including supervision, training, networking, and of course, this podcast and other episodes, head on over to the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. So thank you so much for being here and sharing in these really important conversations, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It is such a pleasure to welcome you both Safina and Garnet, two incredible dietetic students from Ontario in Canada. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having us Fiona, it's an honour to be on here. I
0: can't wait to dive into lots of conversations. Hey Garnet.
2: Hello from, I was going to say out east, but now I'm also back in Ontario. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Yeah, well it's a it's a vast country, so I, I want to kind of uh, position where you are geographically in the world. So um Safina, I wanted to start with handing over to you. I uh I understand you have um some introductions that you would like to make, so I'm just gonna hand over to you.
1: Thanks, Fiona. Before we get into uh the podcast today, I'd like to do a land acknowledgement. Uh so Gurneet and I are both located in Vaughan, Ontario, which is a little bit north of Toronto. And so as settler women, we acknowledge the sacred unceded stolen land which we're situated upon. And the purpose of this acknowledgement is to remember the true history of how Canada came to be and the mistreatment of Indigenous peoples, including cultural genocide, theft of natural resources and deception to acquire lands. As I mentioned, we're both located in Vaughan, which uh, is the traditional territories of the Anishinaabeg, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Métis Nation that was taken under the Toronto Purchase Treaty Number 13. These are the traditional lands where Indigenous groups live, hunt, and gather, connect with each other and the world and beings around them. Additionally, the community where we reside is the namesake of an enslaver, and we are actively participating to decolonize this locally through activism work. The impacts of colonialism are sustained today with the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people, police brutality, housing and employment discrimination, lack of access to clean drinking water, nutritious food, and loss of language and cultural practices. In our efforts to advocate for social justice and dietetics, we must honor the Indigenous lives lost and the hardships they endured and continually, continually do so. And we must be active in our commitment towards reconciliation. Our commitment to reparations is lifelong through actively combating anti-Indigenous racism, working with Indigenous communities in our professional capacity, and dismantling the systems of oppression that continue to perpetuate injustice. We encourage you to reflect on this acknowledgement, what it means to you, and how we can move forward with reconciliation because we are all treaty people.
0: Thank you so much, Safina. That acknowledgement of land and of peoples and of culture is really critical to the work that we are bringing into dietetics. Uh, The two cannot be separated in so many ways. So I really appreciate the the depth and breadth that you went to, to really give uh, our listeners uh, an idea of uh, how, um, how. The um, land and the the way in which um, cultures and um, food practices and food sovereignty has been stolen, and what that's got to do with us being dietitians. So that really sets the scene. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So I wanted I wanted to start off with maybe asking um, asking you, Garnet, about. You know, what, why why does justice mean so much to you? How have you kind of come to be um, really, you have invested a lot of time and energy and um, your your studies into justice. What does it mean to you?
2: Yeah, so when I even think about the word and there is obviously like a lot of imagery that comes into place, like a fist and things like that, marching. But also it can be something that, is day-to-day in workplaces and schools and settings that it takes on different forms and it's for different people for sure and when I think about myself being in dietetics I think I always found myself taking a step outside of the profession because when you are just in the same field talking about the same things there does happen to be that group thinking you think this is the best thing that you're a part of it's only until you, you don't know that you're going to hear about the problems and things that aren't working from people outside. When everyone's inside, there is that group thing. So I often find myself in places that are maybe in like political scenes, end up being more social activism, I guess, in the Toronto area when I was brought up. And when I brought up food stuff, there's a lot of things that I couldn't talk about because it wasn't stuff I talked about in the class. And I'm like, I don't know these other intersections. Racial justice. What does that look like? Food insecurity. That's something I've dove into more. And yeah, thinking about like, yeah, why doesn't everyone have, we all have the right to food, but why doesn't everyone have food? And I would say more so I take in thinking about dietetics and my thesis work specifically interracial justice. And that comes from like a personal space, place as well. Thinking about like, yeah, hearing things that I'm not going to fit in and thinking about what does it mean to fit in size is one thing, but then your skin color is another, right? So I think that's what I alluded to in the beginning, and then just taking that comment and really drove home for me and going into my master's, I always wanted to do research. So I was looking more at culture, but I'm like, yeah, what does a profession look like? How do we understand ourselves? And quickly I came to learn that by the limited research that we do have and what we do know is that it is a pretty white-dominated female profession here in Canada, and like elsewhere, just hearing like the um, comments and connections that I hear in like the States and like also the UK and Australia, like a lot of people are bringing this forward. And I also wanna point out that it's not being white that's the problem, it's how whiteness and how, yeah, these dominant ideologies kind of take, how how do they play out in the classroom, in the curriculum? and the ways we eat, like, what is the reference point and of being healthy, and it always comes back to um, being white, and Eurocentric ways of eating. So that's something I've been trying to work on. And it's hard, because when you're talking to diverse groups, and like racially, ethnically, multiculturalism, and indigenous groups, it's, I don't see myself a part of this profession, or that kind of where are people and they do exist. And it's just understanding why, I guess just understanding like the environment, like why why is there a lack of, or again, I don't have data, but based on what I do know there is a lack and that's what I'm trying to get. And it's like, why haven't we thought about this? And I think the huge number one question that always comes up is like, why is it now for racialized people existed before 2020? A lot of these issues existed before why now so I think that's where that really comes from and also I kind of wanted to maybe now is also a good time to just put a disclaimer out there Um, just adding on to Safina doing the land acknowledgement and also acknowledging like yeah for everyone to think about yeah your position on the land your relationship and settler colonialism and how you choose to decolonize that's really important and also like we aren't experts we are just talking from our lived experience and our journey thus far, being like professionally socialized in dietetics. And we are also vulnerable um, in our position and we haven't attained our dietetic like title yet. And we, and yeah, like, I expect that there will be repercussions. There always are repercussions of some sort. And that's sad to say, and as racialized women, that's something that we have dealt with in our life and it continues to happen. So yeah, just, we also are mindful we may make mistakes and may have missteps and just ask to be called in or called out to address this and not further put trauma on equity seeking groups and ask for space to heal and respect like that capacity as well. So just important to put that out there because yeah, sometimes things get said and sometimes we don't know where things are leading, but um, I think that just comes from like the need to have these conversations. And it's great that we can have this conversation here and we hope more people and places are inviting the inviting conversation like this because they're long overdue
0: yeah not only are they long overdue but um but the I, i really appreciate your points around um missteps and making mistakes and being willing to lean into the, not only the possibility that that will happen, but the fact that that will happen—it's not an if, it's a, a when—and uh, you know the, the courage that it takes to uh, to show up for important conversations that can move the needle in terms of uh, inclusion and equity and justice across the board, um, but uh, for for marginalised folks being at the centre. It's, um, you know, we're all going we're all going to mess it up. And, you know, if we can hold each other in a space where we can be courageous and and compassionate, whilst also not letting each other off the hook, then hopefully we can continue you know um going from from strength to strength and this is a certainly a profession where we need to be digging in and doing some really really uh, decent work so um thank you so much Ghani that that uh, set, sets us up really really nicely because I really want to loop back to you and ask more about your um more about your uh uh, your research, which is absolutely fascinating. So we'll loop back to that. Um, but Safina, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, um, what what justice means for you and how you how the the kind of trajectory that has led you to to, to having such an interest in in uh, in social justice and in particular um, food justice.
1: Thanks, Fiona. So as Gernit mentioned, we're still both learning and unlearning and it's a lifelong process. Um, and so I do encourage the listeners, if I say something that's offensive or incorrect, I welcome your constructive feedback uh, because I know intent versus impact and I absolutely do not want to be stepping on anyone uh, with the work that I'm doing. Uh, and so the whole reason why I got in social justice more recently it was always a value of mine but I didn't know how to act on it and when it really started is when Gernit and I connected through a mutual colleague at Ryerson Um, and Gurnit would sort of ask me really hard questions and it forced me to think about my positionality and the work that I was doing did I want to be like other dietitians or did I want to be my own brand of dietitian? Did I want to be Safina, the dietitian? Um, and so, with that, there's two main reasons why I think I got into social justice. The first being my character and values. So, ever since I was little, my family members will be able to tell you I'm very outspoken, empathetic. So, if someone's hurting, I hurt with them. And if I see something that's, you know, wrong or oppressing someone else, I, you, you can bet that I will speak out about it um, and so I always have that respect and ex- res- acceptance Sorry for all people and their differences and the second factor is that I believe social justice is in my DNA I would be doing my ancestors and my family members a great disservice if I didn't actively resist and speak out about injustice And the explanation for this is sort of rooted in my family history of how we arrived to Canada. Uh, It's a little bit heavy, I do forewarn you. Um, But long story short, my great-great-grandparents are from Hindustan, which is now India. uh, And they were brought to the colony of Guyana, which is located in South America. And they were indentured laborers. So indentured servitude was born out of the need to fill gaps for cheap labor. in the colony as Africans were, quote unquote, emancipated from enslavement. And so my ancestors were deceived into migrating through the false promise that they would receive compensation, that they would be free, and that they would be able to return back home at any time. Uh, And so when they arrived, they realized that it was a very different reality. And the plantation owners effectively held my ancestors' lives in their hands. And so they didn't really have the option to resist, because if they did, it would be life or death for them. Uh, And so this complacency and culture of silence was passed down from generation to generation um, and also sort of shapes my identity as well. Uh, But... It's the reason why I do the work that I do, because I know I want to have a positive impact. And even if I can help one person, that's all that matters to me. And so because of my family's histories and the privileges that I'm afforded as a second generation Canadian Indo-Guyanese Muslim woman, as one of the few people in my family who has pursued a university education and only the second to pursue a master's degree I have a level of privilege that many people in the world don't. I have the education and the resources in order to seek out research and tools in order to support my work. I have the words to articulate our experiences and a platform and therefore I have the power to have people listen to me. And so for me these privileges are an extreme amount of power and therefore it's up to me to use it responsibly. So for me using this power responsibly is doing social justice work. Wow. Thank you
0: so much. I received those words so gratefully and uh when you were talking about you as a a younger child and then your um, family history and your ancestry I was um, able to put the pieces of the puzzle together it all makes so much sense as to why Safina the dietician will undoubtedly be taking um, a position of um of uh you know you're you're so fierce and determined and i can see exactly why why and how your dna has led you to this point and we are so glad you're here both of you (laughs) thank you so much it's just it's um it's a true honor and a and a pleasure to be to be speaking with you and you know to be following your careers which is going to be you know incredible over time it really will be so Thank you, Safina, I really appreciate you stepping us through that. Um, Gunita, I was wondering if it felt okay to just give us a, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a shape to this conversation. So, in in justice circles, in social justice circles, we speak a lot about. You know, there there are some words that we that we commonly come back to. So words like privilege, um, words like oppression. Um, Safina spoke about power. Um, and supremacy as well. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind stepping us through some of the more common words that we might be using today or that people might read or hear about um, that might be helpful just to um, explain a little bit so that we're all kind of on the same page and understanding what it is we're actually talking about here.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I know like Sathina can definitely add on to this as well as she has. (laughs) I know we were talking about this before. I'm like, Svina, I feel like I always have to pop up in my thesis and I'm working on things in between. And then, yeah, when also it's important to recognize like when you are doing this work in anti-racism and being racialized, there is a lot of that burden that's put on you and it's that emotional labor. So I feel like that's why sometimes I don't reopen things or I choose to like, I'll do my interviews that I'm doing right now and like leave it for a while just to process things. But yeah, you're so a part of your research in that aspect. And yeah, these are things like even words that even come up, um, talking to people, and it's more, I think it's got it's gone to the point where we should know what they mean. And when I think about, um, yeah, like white privilege for just like to start off with, that's, something that we can dive more into with Peggy McIntosh is also the invisible knapsack and that's an activity individuals can do. And when I yeah first came across this word and like referencing in my thesis, it says 1988. That's a long time ago, but not so long ago as well. And just kind of like what um, Peggy McIntosh kind of defines it as is like the unearned advantage based on race. And yeah, that can be seen on an individual and systematic level and like when you think about social economic and political realms of society and also like the concept of white privilege is an outcome from how whiteness and white supremacy not only name aesthetics but also associate positive values for being white so there's like more other um, scholars pointing this out and that's where you really it's not until like you see um, an infographic or an image so I really suggest to people to follow or if you haven't seen that pyramid image by the conscious kid that's a great illustration of how white supremacy um, can be seen in society and yeah so I think Sabina, if you wanted to add on more to like taking the deep dive into
1: white supremacy yeah so just to add to that um the whole well black scholars actually wrote about um racial privilege before Peggy McIntosh had officially coined the the term um but that's like a different issue for a different podcast uh and so when she originally wrote it it was for white privilege and for male privilege And now it's expanded into a variety of intersectional identities. So we're looking at um, national privilege, linguistic privilege, based on sexual orientation, gender and gender identity, um, our abilities, physical and mental, our religion, uh, having a passing privilege. So appearing white, but you're actually from... uh, a culture, another culture, Um, even class privilege and all of these different types of privilege sort of mingle and form ultimately who you are. And so this is the reason why I did an IGTV a few months ago about unpacking that privilege. And so a lot of people, it feels icky to kind of talk about because it's like, I had to work hard to get to where I am today. Uh, It's unfair to say that I had a privilege, um, which is why I talked about my own experiences because I don't want people to feel like I'm saying, you're bad, Uh, you need to do the work because I need to do the work as well. Um, And so in terms of Discussing how privilege sort of manifests in healthcare, um, I'll provide this example. There's always the power dynamic between the healthcare practitioner and the client or patient. Um, and no matter how much we try to apply that client centered care model, uh, we can't negate the fact that there always will be that power dynamic there. Um, And so when I think about privilege, I think about the way that my grandparents were treated. They have, like many people of South Asian descent, type 2 diabetes, um, and my grandmother has glaucoma. Um, And so they had a optometrist at one point who... They weren't able to identify why her eye pressure was so high. And basically he just attributed, oh, this is common for Indian people. um, And that's it. He didn't prescribe her medication, no counseling, no education, Um, which was very racist in a sense because he just attributed it to their color um, and their origins, so to speak. Um, So with that, they ended up leaving that optometrist and finding another optometrist who actually was able to diagnose it as glaucoma. And so we have to be, that's why it's very important for us as healthcare practitioners, to be aware of our own privileges because then we put that onto our clients and they're not equipped to deal with that. Most people aren't, uh, don't have that level of health literacy to advocate for themselves and to say, no, I know what I'm talking about. And I demand this, this and this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really love the um the the way that you brought this into the kind of practical and thank you so much for um sharing that personal experience too of your of your grandmother's um eye condition, which was um essentially was misdiagnosed and therefore had, you know, significant impact on her well being, undoubtedly. Uh so I what I wanted to just briefly loop back on was what you mentioned, Safina, about um, about power structures in the health practitioner and client or patient setting because I, what I really appreciated in you talking about in client-centred practice or patient-centred practice that we can't ignore that power structures and power inequity exists and in doing so in 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 trying to in trying to ignore it and uh kind of lean into equity there's a part of me that wonders whether we actually do more harm in that way rather than simply acknowledging that these power structures do exist and maintaining ethical client-centered care which really prioritizes and centers the lived experience of the person sitting in front of us because um yeah i think if we if we try to like fake the idea that we're all equal we're actually ignoring the fact that in these kind of systems we're actually not and I was offering it this example the other day just to a a supervisee of mine I I was saying you know if we for example had a knee injury and we go to see an orthopedic surgeon let's just say for a you know for some specialist care no matter how much the surgeon is really trying to make us feel at ease and is really listening to us and taking a really great history and really paying attention, et cetera, et cetera. We know that they are the person who could possibly be doing surgery on our knee. (laughs) So no matter how much somebody tries to, um, you know, uh, close that gap so to speak um of um inequity of power structures we, we still know it's, it's in our body that this person uh is the person who's potentially going to be you know offering us medication treatment referrals etc etc so i appreciated you bringing that back to the practical because that's something that we really need to remember absolutely so um This is something that I can't wait to hear your thoughts on. A few months ago, the two of you co-wrote to Dietitians of Canada. It was a personal statement and it was extraordinary. And with your permission, I'd really like to share it in the notes of this podcast. I know you shared it across social media, but just to, you know, provide that additional, um, you know, ask additional permission for that. I'll just want to check in on that. Um, so I'm really curious to hear about how this statement kind of came about. And um, yeah, so telling us a little bit about the statement and and I guess your, your hopes for how Dietitians Canada and maybe Dietetics more broadly, more globally, might examine issues of power and privilege within our profession.
1: yeah so um there was the annual dietitians of canada conference that occurred and there was some discussion among the dietetic community about the lack of diversity in the presenters who were going to be speaking at the conference and this kind of started out of the video that I posted actually on privilege. It was reshared on the dietitians of Canada page, but I didn't know that until Grunit told me because I didn't follow them at the time. Uh, they didn't ask for my permission to share it and I wasn't tagged in it. So I had no idea that this was going on. Um, and at first I was super excited because I'm like, wow, this is amazing. The national organization is sharing my stuff, but I'm like, Wait. They. Hmm. It's it's a little bit deeper than that, uh, and so I wanted to use this opportunity while I had their attention to bring sort of light to the lack of diversity and inclusion within the organization itself. And this sort of led to a back and forth between us, and just more frustration. Uh, I think on both ends that we weren't really being heard. Um, so ultimately Gernit and I decided to pen our own letters because Gurnit has had her own interactions with DC. Um, I'm less familiar with the organization. I'm not a member, um, and such. So I had a different perspective. Mine was more related to the sharing, uh, of my content and why they wouldn't it's not enough to just share things that you think resonate with your social justice values. You need to be actively involved in it. So it was like me doing a call in to try and get them to say, okay, we need to do more work on uh, the diversity piece for dietitians of Canada. Um, So we co-wrote a letter. I wrote my own, and I really wanted them to understand the impact, because what commonly happens, and Gurneet will also touch on this, is that people of color don't get fairly compensated for the work that they do. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean... I'm still growing, I'm not a dietitian yet. And so I was just happy for the exposure, but needs like, wait, 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 that's very problematic. Like, you know, you took the time, I took a lot of time to sit and think with this and reflect um, and develop the ideas that I discussed in the video. And so I thought, yeah, you know what? If they're paying their executive members, I should be compensated as well. Um, ultimately, we've been notified that it's a volunteer organization, which is fair enough, uh, but but the executives do get a very nice salary out of things, and so it's unfair that they're sharing the work um, of Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are often um, in more I'm very careful about the way I use this vulnerable positions because they're more likely to face backlash when they do this kind of thing. Um, And so contacting Dietitians of Canada uh, was something that doesn't really have, not that it doesn't have repercussions for our career, but they're not the licensing board. Uh, So if we were to come after the licensing board, that would be a completely different conversation. Uh, We're very, we're much more cautious about that. Um, We still have careers to build and we don't want to be blacklisted uh, so to speak.
0: So in just to, just to check with you. So your licensing board is different from your registration board. So there's dietitians Canada, and then you get your license through a separate organization.
1: Yeah, so each province and territory has their own um, licensing board. For us, it's the College of Dietitians of Ontario. And Dietitians of Canada is a voluntary organization, so it's not mandatory for you to be a part of the organization. It's just a nice um, professional area where they share all sorts of resources and do conferences um, and share ideas, that sort of thing.
0: Ah, thank you. The reason why I wanted to clarify that is because in other organisations, I'll give you an example of uh, Dietitians Australia, it all exists in one. So you get registered, you get your, everything is all in one. So it's kind of risky to be speaking up to an organisation that actually holds your licence in the same hand and you and and can um, cut you off from being able to see clients privately yeah so I just wanted to stop there because and just clarify because I think different organizations work in different ways and therefore therefore shapes our capacity or our ability to be able to really step in there and (laughs) so I appreciate that thank you thank you uh so the so uh Ghanik, could you tell us a little bit more about the personal statement? It was um yeah quite extraordinary. So over to you.
2: Yeah, I'm just I think what Stefina mentioned as well, it's it's interesting, like yeah, there's different tiers and organ- like dietetic groups, organizations nationwide, like the states is um states is quite big and they have like a lot of different organizations and groups going on and yeah, I guess just to like clarify even what dietitian in Canada that's like that's like the professional face of like, when you think about digestion, no oh, digestion in Canada. So like there's that and different yeah colleges, regular regulatory colleges. And then there's like also PDEP. So partnership that kind of looks at our competencies and things like that. So there's like a lot of structures and hierarchy for sure. So it really depends on who you're trying to contact and what you're trying to get across. But yeah, the reason like with digestion in Canada is because that's the name that you would see, and that's the association you would first associate with dietitians and just like how there's a medical association, nursing association. So like, even like speaking from my own experience, I am a member and I've been one just, yeah, more so throughout my master's because there is that it's, again, it's, I don't know how this whole accreditation works because we do need to be members to do our, um, certain courses online and I'm still not fully familiar, but I know I kind of have to be a member based on my program too. So that's even things that it's kind of in a way put on you. You can probably dispute that. So we'll see what happens with that as well. But yeah, so just even thinking about my own interaction has been more so over the last three years. So getting to the master's and I have posted something recently just kind of in a way receipts of like me talking to different people, whether I was in Nova Scotia where I study or in Ontario where I kind of went for my internship and just being here. So I kind of document like, I went to an event, I said, what about diversity? Oh yeah, we're looking at diverse roles, so okay. And then I kind of say, what about data? And like, oh, data doesn't exist. And I'm like, how can an organization that's been here for a very long time and a profession that's been here for a very long time and we strive ourselves to being evidence-based, how come we don't even know who makes up the profession? I think that just was a red flag on its own. It's like, do we not care about this? Who is not priority? How can you serve a really diverse group and not know if there's diversity within? And if there isn't diversity within, I even question like how are we learning cultural competence, cultural sensitivity, training, humility? Like there's a lot of words for that as well. But like, yeah, how does that go into place? And you mentioned earlier about are we causing harm and things like that. And I think that goes back to like, At the end of the day, practicing client-centered care, patient-centered care. And at the end of the day, there's also the aspect of having that cultural piece, because you can't know how to talk to someone unless you have that cultural aspect in place. So yeah, I've had discussions over the years, and more so I think last year I made, I wouldn't say a bit of a scene, that's how it's described by others. But for myself, I kind of just did it was a voluntary survey, and I'm just like, well, Everyone's in this room, whoever is here, not the whole profession for sure. But if you don't identify as being a member of like the Black Indigenous people or people of color, or even being from the LGBTQ spectrum, like please stand up and who stood up again, it just indirectly asking and stating like for white cis women to stand up. And that just kind of painted a picture. And I'm like, this is a data survey I've been waiting for and asking for, and we are long overdue for. So yeah, even having those conversations, they're tough. And sometimes I get asked or told, like, reverse racism, reverse racism does not exist. Um, Also, white fragility comes up. And that's when there is a defense. And there's a book about it by Robin D'Angelo, like, yeah, the being defensive of like, why are you bringing this up? And I think when those things come up, it's just like, walls, even as much as we're trying to talk about this and dismantle it, people start putting up walls. And we don't wanna further talk about it. And I guess that's where protecting privilege comes into play. So, yeah, it's so far, I guess the conversation with Safina and I, and that's just, it's funny. I talked to her, I'm like, I remember posting that one comment on one of your posts and being like, so you're doing this weed inclusive stuff. How do you take the cultural aspect? You know, like I didn't think about that. And I'm like, okay, that's something to think about. And that's how we kind of became virtual friends. And what this recent stuff and just me always bringing this up with my research. I just never, I don't know. It's always like if you're good at doing something, don't do it for free. And you have to think about your value and your worth for sure. And I just feel like I've always contributed a lot. And I, and also, yeah, asking for compensation and that's something scary to do. And being like, well, if I ask for pay, they're going to find someone else that's not asking for pay. But what does that really say about the organization? And you really need to give back the value. And I understand like the board is voluntary for sure. But again, there's compensation. Other forms for the board; they do get compensated when they travel and things like that, and for their meals and hotels. So it's just honestly, I think right now I'm just asking for transparency. Everyone's asking for transparency, and um, we all deserve to be, be paid well as dietitians. And what really annoys me and is the fact that people are still asking, "What does a dietitian do? What's the difference between a nutritionist? And it's true, like in different parts of Canada, that the term is. Um, the term is kind of regulated, but not everywhere. I could say for Nova Scotia that you, that is a protected title nutritionist, but in Ontario, it's at the same time, I do, I also question if we're, why aren't we doing, why do people still question this? If we can't move beyond why dietitian does it, just everything else is secondary. It's what's the, what's, yeah, what's kind of like the whole point of us being in this profession while other people are the so quote unquote, nutrition experts and doing the same things, or what what value do we have? So it's, I bring up a lot of things. It's like the race aspect, for sure. It's thinking about our value as dietitians overall. And yeah, why do people not take us seriously? But also, do we even know who makes up the profession? If we don't know who makes up the profession, the other things are really secondary. So yeah, that's where all my like, activism work and that type of stuff comes from. And also being mindful that I don't do this by myself and I have like a a really great support circle and being at the Mount, um, the only other person I really do work with that I realize both of our theses kind of look at diversity in different aspects is Sephora. So Sephora is uh, my classmate, roommate, friend social support and sometimes I say my emotional support worker but you know there's um it wasn't until she also reminded me she's like you know we are one of the few racialized people even here doing this work and then when we thought of like you know reaching out nationally and seeing people doing work across Canada students we're like wait I think it's just us and she had to remind me and then I had to think about my privilege in that position and being like yeah that's Sometimes you remind and sometimes you forget because, again, there are other privileges that kind of block you from other things and support you in other ways. But, yeah, there's not a lot of people doing this work and we definitely need to do more of that and have these spaces and conversations because it's great for me to have the support. But what about other people that really need it at their institutions or wherever they may be in Canada or elsewhere in the world?
0: Yes, yes, I absolutely love that, Gurnit. Thank you so, so much. And what I am going to do is loop back again to your, um, to your research, the research that you're doing, because I, I have a couple of questions around that, which um, which I'm hoping you can speak to. Um, Safina, I'm I'm wondering if you don't mind kind of rounding us off this this part of our conversation, talking about, you know, what are your hopes moving forward for how this statement might. Uh, shift the needle uh, even a little bit, not only for individuals, but then also more collectively as well.
1: Yeah. So we started with posting of our letters. We actually created the dietetic diversity campaign on Instagram. And so we had quite a few uh, dietitians, um, both BIPOC and white allies voice their opinions and, um, their disappointment with the way that Dietitians of Canada handled the whole interaction. Uh, And so we had a conversation with Natalie Savoie, who is the CEO at the moment, um, and she was very receptive to the things that we had to say. And they do want to do things. There are just some limitations at the moment. Uh, but what we really wanted out of this was for them to create a BIPOC consultancy group. So we wanted them, instead of the board members and the leadership of Dietitians of Canada, um, leading the efforts for diversity and inclusion, we wanted it to be by Black, Indigenous, and people of color for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. That way, we're incorporating those diverse perspectives, because right now, it can be said that the organization is uh, quite white, like all of the people, almost all the people leading are, and even still, the members on the board who are people of color are sort of tokenized for for their background, which is very problematic in and of itself. And so we're really calling um, them into action to really think, take a hard, long think about why, why diversity is important and how they can move forward uh, to have more inclusion in the organization uh so as of right now it seems like that's kind of on hold i mean as a national organization they have many different priorities uh but the hope is that this won't fizzle out we uh Grunit actually has started the diet dietetic diversity canada group or diversity diversify, diversify
0: dietetics is it canada
1: yes <laughs> Yeah, sorry, it just slipped my mind.
0: <laughs> uh, so she,
1: she, she started the Canadian uh, chapter, but um, and so within that group, we're having conversations of how we can keep this momentum going. So we're really hoping to do more things in the future.
0: Yeah, you you actually speak to something really important there, Safina. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more, Ganita, about um, diversified dietetics the Canadian branch or chapter, um, you know, you speak to something important and that is keeping the momentum going or really holding, holding to account people who you are in communication with, because so often, especially in larger organizations, we see some, some valuable conversations and we see interest and we see investment and then something else happens that, 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 effectively kind of steals attention or steals energy and it kind of fizzles out. So I um I really look forward to having conversations with both of you down the track to to see how we can, you know, maintain this momentum and we can and that other Other organizations or members of other organizations, we can support each other as well, because there are lots of ways that maybe, um, you know, British dietitians or uh, Kiwi dietitians or Australian dietitians, we can look to other organizations and hold our own organizations accountable based on what others are doing too. So it can have a little bit more of a global effect as well. So, Garnet, do you mind telling us a little bit about Diversified Dietetics and how it's come to Canada?
2: Yeah, for sure, Fiona. So, just thinking about, like, where Diversified Dietetics started. So it started in the States by Tamara and Deanna, who are both Black dietitians. And I really came in contact with them kind of, like, through my thesis advisor, Jen Brady, because I was searching the stuff and then I think it it came to my attention because I'm like, oh, I see this organization. And she's like, oh, you should get in contact with them. So kind of came in contact with them and we started conversations and I got also involved with their mentorship program. And that's where I met Vinci. So that's where our paths crossed. And just having conversation with them and realizing we don't have this in Canada. And they do have chapters within the States and different like, yeah, different cities and things like that. I'm like, It'd be cool to start something in Canada. So primarily it kind of started with a little bit of a working group. It was with myself. It was with Rosie here in, in Canada and also Candice. So a couple of us kind of got into phone calls and then also ultimately, um, Sephora and I kind of started like the first meeting here that we had in Halifax and it took place during critical dietetics conference in October, 2019. So we kind of have a closed space. So it took a little bit of a spin I made it, although Diverse by Dietetics focuses on racial and ethnic diversity and it is all encompassing. So whoever wants to support this, whether they're allies, accomplices, whatever they like to name themselves, it's not just for racialized people. It's also opening, um, allowing people from privileged backgrounds, also white individuals to kind of come and support. So, but for myself at that moment, I thought it was really important with everything going on to have a close space. It didn't come easy. There was questions from White students and things like that. like why can't we come? And usually their events are open. It's not like that. It's just I really thought it was important to have that closed space. And from that, we kind of started this closed Facebook group. and then it wasn't until recently this year that we opened it up to just all Canada on Facebook. So whether you are racialized or not in dietetics, a student, a dietitian, intern, Everyone's open to join, but we also recognize it might not be the most accessible because it is not everyone's on Facebook. So so Sephora and I have just been like figuring out things in between of like how we can get different forums going. And yeah, that's just been general conversation, but it's a great virtual community. A lot of people post questions. um, A lot of people share different content, whether there's like anti-oppressive training, there's webinars So it's like a really great self-education group and having these conversations because things in the States. They also have um different associations. Like there's Black tradition group, there's a Latinx group. And we don't have that in Canada at all. We don't have those groups. So when I told it to Deanna and she's like, oh, this is, you really have to like, tailoring the um, material here is very different. Also thinking of a relationship with Indigenous people. So that's kind of like where we do tailor off a little bit differently. And it, for Sephora and I, it's voluntarily run. And we're also students and getting into this. But it's been a great, it's been great learning the ropes and getting our hands dirty in other ways. And also, you know, like you learn by trial. And we never had this before. And this is where diverse conversations start. And we really need to support these spaces, and people really need to support back as well.
0: Yeah, that's amazing, Garnet. So essentially, you have been in, in um, active communication with the U.S.-based diversified Dietetics groups, and then have been able to set up your own um, more uh, local chapter or affiliation with that, which really seeks to serve um, to serve um, Black and Indigenous people of color, but in Canada as well.
2: Yeah, and it's. Yeah, it's also like, at the same time, not, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And if there's already groups doing that, it's like powering those groups and at the same time, powering the movements that are already happening, because it's really easy just to be like, I'm gonna start my own thing. But it's a lot to just start something from scratch as well
0: absolutely yeah absolutely and when your um, time and energy is being divided in about 100 different areas then you know working together and building on what already exists even even like you say where we're able to take what feels really uh resonant and that uh, shows up in a more uh, multinational or in a global fashion and then able to tailor that more for for local communities as well i as an Australian, I, I do understand what you're talking about. Where, um, you know, if our anti-oppression work is very US-centric, there is um, sure a vast majority of it that is that does feel really relevant. Um, but as a colonialised country, it um, there are particular aspects of it that are really quite specific, even even regionally specific in some ways. Um, you know, so that's that's the ongoing work <laughs> for all of us. So. Um, that just to just to finish us off and <clears throat> this is probably kind of a, a, a big topic but i'm but i'm curious to hear a little bit more about you know over the past few months there has been a real resurgence of um a critique of of health at every size and and what we name as weight inclusive approaches um and certainly there's been a, a lot of um call-ins and, and some call-outs as well with uh people who uh dietitians and and particularly dietitians and health, health professionals, health practitioners who uh, who name themselves as haze aligned or um, weight inclusive to be um, really digging into ways in which we uh, are actively not uh not including race and culture in our inclusivity work so i'm so curious to hear your thoughts no matter how processed or unprocessed they are that doesn't you know we're, we're here just having a, a conversation with wherever we're at so i'm just really curious to hear about your thoughts as to you know um the the your um not only your lived experience but also what you've read or heard or participated in conversations about you know the the evolution of this and um and you know your your observations of our more recent conversations so i guess i'll I'll ask safina if it's okay you know what are are your thoughts at the moment just even just your opinions or your experiences um, you know it doesn't all have to be in a perfect little processed box
1: Thanks for the opportunity to uh, discuss this. It's very timely. Um, And I'm part of a number of weight inclusive dietetic practitioner groups. um, And this is a conversation that I'm seeing take place. Uh, So just a little bit of a background on how I got into health at every size and weight inclusion work is my own experiences. As a child, I was chubby. Um, so, I would always hear sort of things about the way my body looked and what I needed to do. This really informed my own um relationship with food and my issues with body image uh, and so, I knew as a dietitian i didn't want to perpetuate these types of notions, uh, which is why I started reading Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon um, for a professional development project last fall. Uh, And so it was really nice for me to finally find a framework that I felt aligned with my values and the kind of Uh, advice and recommendations that I wanted to provide, and the kind of care that I wanted to provide for my future clients. Um, And for me, where I can see the limitations, aside from all that Lucy Afremore has talked about, and other dietitians and fat activists have discussed, uh, is when Gernit asked me, I had made a post, um, and she asked me, how are you talking about health at every size? from your perspective as a South Asian woman. And I said, that's difficult. I haven't thought about that. And I definitely didn't do that in my presentation uh, because I didn't think that it needed to be done. But then the more I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it, it, I couldn't reconcile my cultural identity and health at every size. The two didn't just fit. And there's two reasons for that. One being the way, the framework of how Hayes came to be, which is it took from the fat acceptance movement, um, or rather fat liberation movement that started in the 70s. Um, and it repackaged all those ideas that were by fat people, for fat people. And then it put this nice image of thin women at the forefront of the movement. So effectively it erased the people that were trying to be liberated. And then the second piece is that in South Asian culture, and more specifically I'll speak from the Indo-Guyanese perspective, is that you need to look a certain way, so your breasts need to be full, you need to have curves, but you can't be you can't have too much fat, um, you know have a nice bum These are all standards that were you know created and taken from different parts of the world and are ultimately shaped by the the results of colonialism. And so because of my own childhood experiences of the way my body was viewed um, and that sort of cultural norm, it was really hard for me to put the two together. Um, And ultimately, I think that this resurgence of criticism of health at every size is going to move us in a positive direction because there are intersectional Uh, dietetic students and dietitians such as myself and Gernit who know how the current framework can um, sort of oppress people of different groups um, and then we can use our own experiences and the tools that we have at our disposal to maybe take from these weight inclusive approaches uh, but create something entirely different that might uh that'll be more applicable to a variety of populations. Of course it's not no one framework is going to be perfect um, and going to work well for every single population but uh, hopefully in the future uh, we'll be conducting research that'll be able to to be more inclusive. Sounds
0: like you've got a PhD already set up there, Safina, for yourself.
1: Hopefully in the future. <laughs> Yay, that sounds great.
0: Uh, another how many years of your life?
1: <laughs> I know. I'm just hoping to start my dietetic career and then we'll, we'll revisit the PhD idea.
0: Okay, that sounds good. I'll, I'll loop back to you maybe in five years' time and just see how you settled into that idea. For sure. <laughs> Um, Garnit I'm really curious to hear from your perspective you know also given that you know you, you were the one who gave Safina the nudge around you know mm, this is really interesting so how you you know what is this utility you know in, in, through through your own lived experience cultural lens so over to you.
2: Yeah and even thinking back to when I did comment on Safina's post and this Goes back, I guess, this January, but even before that, when I first got into the master's at the Mount and um, just talking to Sephora again, we would talk about a lot of different things in nutrition and I guess also both being racialized and we we're living in the same dorm. um Yeah, th- that was the first time we really heard about haze and hearing about weight inclusive practice. And we just had a frank discussion. I'm like, so how it was, it just really went back to like okay we're learning this it seems great in theory but can we talk to our parents about this and we both laughed and it was like over tea and stuff like that and we had many conversations like we tried to figure out like so how can I tell my mom I'm okay with my body or do you just say like this is just how we're born or this is how our ancestor robot like both and then also noting that Sephora and I are both yeah we're both South Asian um She's born in India. Um, my parents are from India, specific, but they're from North India, and Sephora's from South India. So again, different size variations each way, and also I should have done this earlier. Just like who, like as Safina talked about being indo ghanese I'm I am South Asian descent, and more so like see identify as being Punjabi, and then religiously being Sikh. So. And then, when cultural aspect and religion come kind of comes into that play, it's a lot of things, There's a lot of intersections. Like thinking about the shape of your body, thinking also about skin color, because then colorism comes into play. And being where my parents immigrated from, being in Punjab, and it's been colonized, and, and India's been colonized, and also with the partition with Pakistan on the side. So it's gone through. And then also considering, it's going to get heavy too. Considering like the other cultural genocide when I think back to the Sikh community in 1984 and that's other things on its own, but there's a lot of displacement. There's a lot of intercultural trauma that's happened. And what is the ideal body? And I've learned from like a young age that it's being thin, it's being um, lighter in skin. And I just so happened to be born like that. And also being lighter in skin, being, South Asian and also Punjabi so those are always things in my favor and I think it's even like most recently when I always come back home and I'm traveling and doing things again your body changes with where you are in your life and also being a woman and there's a lot of things so you do hear comments like you look like you um, gained some weight or it looks like you're not eating a lot and then when you hear these comments and Sephora and I always talk about it, it's like these are ways that people in our community like show care and be like oh i don't think you've eaten or you have you seem like you're eating a lot take care of yourself but when you do translate it over and it does again come from a colonial place of like you're not kind of quote unquote telling you like your body is not right there's something wrong with you type of thing so like those have been difficult and most recently i did have a conversation with my parents about it's just what my body is you're saying this about me that type of stuff and it didn't go over well and I told this to many people, mostly my racialized, like dietetic professional friends. And it's like, well, that's kind of courageous that you try to do that. I'm like, that was a very long conversation, just seeing how it kind of went on. But there, again, when we talk about this, there's a lot to unpack. And it goes back to having that client centered care approach. And you really need to treat people the way they want to be treated versus the way you want to be treated, because that's what it comes at the end. And also, I, um, what I've seen, and just being with a lot of people that are researching this, and they just so happen to be white. I I feel like that's something to even talk about. Like we do have our own values that we hold, but at the same time, if someone's coming to us, that's always controversial. Someone comes and they're like are Your a dietitian or a dietetic intern. I want to lose weight. And just because you don't want to do that, or you don't believe in that in other ways, it's you have to really understand where that person's coming from and what are they really looking for? And it's, if they come and then they spend a lot of money and they're like, this is not what I want. I'm going to go and get like bariatric surgery. I'm going to go to someone else. And it's, or yeah, it's, it's a, it's a heavy, a lot of things to unpack. It's really heavy, but we really do need to have those conversations. And that's where client-centered care really needs to be in the center of it. And we need to understand at the end of the day, it's what the client wants. It's not what we want. We can obviously hold those values, but if someone's coming to us and if we can't do that, it's a really good idea just to refer to someone else. That can support them because that's whatever is within your scope and if it's not within your scope referring over and that's really important to do versus causing trauma and making someone feel like oh no I can't eat this or now my body is okay and then also this is a huge and this is maybe why it's a little bit difficult to even have these conversations. different cultural groups like Safina brought up earlier with being South Asian descent and within different groups the high rates of diabetes and also I'm thinking about cardiovascular disease and even like the um, what I'm kind of, I guess what kind of runs in my family as well. Right. So thinking about that and if there is um, excess fat or there is fat in certain parts of my body and then it puts me at a higher risk. It's, I could say I'm happy with my body. It's okay. But if it is going to cause harm like later on or even now, that's something to consider. It's not just being happy with that. What if, you're happy with harm being caused and versus really understanding. And it just brings up, like, there's a lot to unpack for sure. And I don't even know the answer, how to do this cultural weight inclusive practice yet, but really interested to see, like, what others are doing and learn more about that. Cause I never really dove into it. I think I never dove into it based on the conversations Sephora and I have and other people, because it always just seemed the people that are having conversations are mostly white women. And again, thinking back to history, it starts from, um, yeah, from racialized women and liber- for fat liber- liberation. But yeah, when you don't see people like yourselves talking about that, it's difficult to be like, how can this be applied to this group? Or how have you thought about that? And that's where the lived experience is really important. And meeting people where they're at. And it's great to just start this conversation here because, yeah, it is a touchy subject. Not everyone wants to talk about it. And us even talking about it now, like just being students and trying to figure out their loops and stuff like that yeah, BMI is its own thing, right? Like there's so much to unpack and it's just being open to just unpacking it together. And I think that's the steps that the profession really needs to take to understand the trauma that has been caused and how can we undo trauma and really, yeah, like pave a better future that's equity-based and also inclusive and what does that mean? And what does that look like? And how do we get there? It doesn't, you don't know until you start and kind of get dirty kind of figuring out the loops and everything as well.
0: Yes, I love that. Yes, getting getting in there together and having some of those um dirty messy mucky conversations that ultimately um i think one of the errors that we sometimes make and this is a kind of a collective error is that where we have these conversations to get somewhere or to have answers and um, i'm not sure about you two but i'm discovering i'm probably i very late to the game in this after having you know, 20 years of practice behind me but you know um the, the sense of acceptance around you know what if we were to have conversations to be keeping ethical practice at the core you know what if we were to be having these conversations to be serving the people who we say we are serving at the core as opposed to to have answers or to get somewhere so um anyway that's that's a little bit of my rant but i what i really appreciate you know ganit about what you just spoke about is um understanding how even the very um frameworks let's just say um health at every size is a very broad framework or non-diet approaches um you know being the multiplicity which includes things like um, intuitive eating for example or um uh, lucy afrimore's um well now type of uh, framework that all of these kind of non-diet approaches they um none of them can possibly even incorporate every single person's experience and what you really spoke to there go so beautifully is understanding the um the reasons that the lived experience and uh and uh, highly highly valid reasons why people might have uh, desires to be changing their body, which is deeply rooted in often in white supremacy. It's often re- rooted in power structures and people's capacities to to have any kind of voice in the world. So not only, um, um, you know, racialized peoples, but then also um, non-binary folks, L- folks from LGBTQ um, communities and reasons why people feel um, due to their lived experience in in this world, why changing their body would lead to a, a, a better quality of life and, and for us to be able to leave to the side our own uh, fairly narrow opinions maybe to be able to concentrate on the person in front of us and, and how we might serve them best. And I really appreciate what you said, Ganeet, about if we, if we have, you know, I call it for me my line in the sand and that is um, the conversations that I'm willing to have and then the practice that i'm willing to enact let's just say so i will often say to my students look i'm not going to be the person who's going to do the, the shake program for example with somebody but what i will do is i am more than happy to engage in conversations around um to hold an empathic and compassionate space for people to explore the way in which they have experienced their body which has led them here to me today and then to find someone suitable who can hold a space where um, you know, uh, where, where their desires can be uh, supported with, with behaviors. Um, so if that's not me, then I will find you somebody who can hold that space for you in a way that, that serves your purpose. Was that kind of what you were talking about, Garnit?
2: Yeah, like for sure. Like if, um, if that's not the service you provide or at the same time being mindful of the person's time and effort and money, what they're spending. It's like, if, well, these are the options that I do offer. But if you want to go into the other route, like, you know, like when you're kind of, I don't know, like choosing, buying a car, I don't know, picking up clothes, like trying to choose where to eat. Like there's a lot of pros and cons. So it's like listing things out at the end of the day. It's a person's choice what they want to do and where they want to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So, uh, well, okay. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you two for literally hours, right? You know, because you you are such a, um, a actually you're a wealth of wisdom more than anything else. And I, I, I personally don't believe wisdom comes with years. I believe wisdom comes with lived experience and a capacity and a willingness to explore um, ideas that live within us. So I want to honour your experience um, no matter how, Uh, you know, no matter the the years of life that you have lived in this world and the wisdom that you have brought to this conversation today, I'm, I'm just incredibly appreciative to you both. So just, just to kind of round us off, I wanted to offer both of you an opportunity to um to uh to, to put anything on the table, on this collective table that we have created together today that you feel like maybe we've missed or um oh gosh, we've missed fifty million things, haven't we? But um anything that you would like to to offer, you know, in, in us kind of closing up today. So um Safina, enormous gratitude to you. Is there anything that you would like to kind of um, offer to us today in terms of, um, you know, people to go and listen to, organisations to support, um, things that we, you know, that you would have loved to have talked about?
1: Yeah. So when speaking about the whole health at every size and the supremacy within that um, and sort of the origins of the fat liberation movement I also forgot at the moment to mention that within various cultures they have their own standards of beauty and in some cultures fat is beautiful it's you know seen as a sign of fertility and wealth and all of these different positive um associations that we don't have here in in the west um and so with that I'd like to add um without taking from culture, but more from an appreciative perspective and to put people um, on wonderful women who are doing the same work is that in Black culture, women are very appreciative of their bodies. Um, they, the whole body positivity movement sort of arised out of their... Um, self-love and really caring for themselves in a world that hasn't been kind to them because of their intersecting identities. And Kimberly Crenshaw, a critical race theory scholar does an excellent job of highlighting the different ways in which black women are oppressed. And so body positivity was a way for them to overcome that. Um, so I want to put the spotlight on a few Black women who are doing amazing work in the area of body positivity and liberation, including Stephanie Yeboah, who um, who does a lot of work in the area, and I believe she's also a lifestyle and fashion blogger. Huntle Shackelford, who is um, who writes articles, um, various articles about body positivity, uh, as well as Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote uh, The Body is Not an Apology. Um, She regularly does uh, IGTVs and talks, dives into all these different areas. And she's so well spoken, and she's so able to put the thoughts that we have swirling in our head and, you know, put a name to it and talk about why we need to address it and providing those uh, solid calls to action, which we need to all apply into our own lives. Um, there's also Sabrina Strings, who wrote the um, Fearing the Black Body the Racist Origins of Fat Phobia. Um, So these are wonderful women to look to um, and learn from as I really want to be mindful um, not erasing the work of those uh, who have done who have laid the ground so to speak for me to be here. Um, And also just sort of closing off that you know as healthcare practitioners privilege is something we can't just kind of say look at the social determinants of health and say all right check 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 we're done um there's so much more to it uh And so we really need to be mindful of the implications it has for the people we work with. And even the medical establishment itself is created as a result of colonization and capitalism. So we look at how uh, recently in the news there's been talk about how the father of modern gynecology performed experiments on black women without anesthesia, without pain medication, because his belief was that they couldn't feel pain. This is actually a belief that Black people do not feel pain. Um, there was also the birth control trials in Puerto Rico and Haiti. Um, there were the nutrition experiments that took place in residential schools, which is act- which actually provided the data that we have today for the uh, recommended daily intakes. Uh, and so we really need to be mindful. Our discipline is very rooted in the oppression of people from non-dominant groups. Uh, And so two exercises that I suggest. uh, The first is Peggy McIntosh's Extending the Knapsack. um, And Fee, it would be wonderful if you could provide the link to this. Uh, Just to briefly summarize, it's sort of a one hour activity where people work in pairs and, They're posed different questions and really asked to think about the privilege that they experience. Um, And so an exercise that I myself have done and, well, I don't know if I'm the original creator, so I won't take credit for that, but it was something uh, that I thought of as doing the social determinants of health exercise. So print out any model of the determinants of health that you think you like best, Um, and under each category, sort of use a traffic light system, whether green means like you're good, you face no barriers, yellow means yeah, you might face some barriers, but nothing that um, severely hinders your ability to pursue healthcare, and then red meaning that there are serious barriers and limitations uh, to this area. And this will really provide us with a picture of our own positionality. And I know Gurneet herself has done uh, the flower power, I believe it's called. Uh, <laughs> I may be saying that incorrectly. Grneet, uh, if you want to step in on that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. That was something I was, we were doing in our other youth group and I brought that up as a a nice way to like talk about intersectionality so it's pretty much yeah it was just like something I found on the website but literally what it is you kind of put your name in the middle and thinking about Kimberly Crenshaw intersectionality searching that up and it just because it's summer I thought this was fun to do with our youth group it's like you make the pedals and you kind of write down like yeah what about race what about income what about language citizenship all those other intersections that you have and maybe you'll end up making lots of bouquets that's also it can end up that way because intersectionality can go on forever and a lot to unpack. so that's definitely something to look into and then i'm thinking about the social location we activity, like and that's something i learned from suzanne who's actually the um a black woman i met through meal exchange at an event and we've just been in contact and she's in the states becoming a social worker And also myself, it's important for me to credit that I'm able to do this work and I do have that privilege and and benefiting from that. But at the same time, crediting Black women specifically who have allowed me to be educated about things, again, at their own expense at times. And thinking about diversified dietetics with Tamara and Deanna, who are both Black women, thinking about one of my friends who's known for like probably since I started my master, just being connected with her, Rosie Mensha, the Rosie Nutritionist. Uh, we've always had very in extensive conversations about racism and health. And she's also looking into doing her private practice that she started and looking at like weight inclusive practice and body positivity, what does it mean to her and her community and someone else that I've been connected with is Julia, who's nutrition positive. Um, can't say her last name because I don't want, I can't say that Exante Goose in Francais for that, but that's someone I've been connected with, and I believe she's in Montreal in Canada here, and it's great to see the work that she's doing, and yeah, we really do need to give credit where credit's due, and, and that's what I feel like that's really missing in dietetics when it comes to, there's obviously pictures of people smiling with salads and diverse images of what multiculturalism means in Canada, and all these infographics for sure but it's like giving voice to the people is really important and that's what I'm trying to do with like my research getting the counter stories so I always say these aren't the stories these are the testimonials you're going to see in websites because those are the hard truths that people face the emotional it's very emotional it's very heavy and it's things that we do really need to listen to so I really hope that individuals who are listening and professional organizations institutes really take the time to Everyone's saying the reflecting, thinking and reading, but what about doing? That's what everyone's waiting for. We don't need any more moments of silence. We need action. And it just brings, this is like a funny point that I bring up, but it's actually a true point in a way when I think back to colonization, colonization and yeah, being, being from, my parents are from India, immigrating there, immigrated from there. So thinking like the colonizers just in not come and say, we're going to do this. And then we'll give you tonight to think about it, whether you like it or not, or not whatever happens right it just happened and it was very abrupt and and also thinking about slavery it was very abrupt no one it was unconsensual it just happened because whoever had power so understanding that these systems have been in place for many years and it's going to take many years to undo the harm but it starts from just accepting that this is reality this is what it is naming names not going around the bush of not saying racism not saying this like, things need to be named. White supremacy needs to be named. White privilege. Racism needs to be named. And until we name things, we can't move forward. And I really feel like this is a turning point. And these things have been happening before COVID. And that also comes up with discussion, grounding ourselves like this just didn't happen because COVID-19 happened in the world. These just things emerge because you can really figure out who's privileged and who's not privileged. And that's where who's getting who's benefiting and who's losing out. And Who's dying and who's surviving like who's thriving and who's surviving for sure and I guess that's something that we really need to think about introspectively and really start practicing instead of telling uh, individuals I'm listening it's going to happen just wait on it we need to see progress things can happen overnight we saw the government starting to offer funding so overnight and these are people at the same time saying it's going to take months and months of consultation Governments and everyone's being held accountable, things can happen quickly and you can take those steps. And just like how Safi and I, in the beginning, were like, there might be missteps, there might be mistakes. I think just being open and honest about that is really important. And that's how we can move forward with having these difficult conversations and also sitting in discomfort, which is really important as well.
0: Thank you so much goith what a What an amazing uh finale to this uh this really incredibly important conversation. I am so appreciative and grateful to you both for your time, for your energy, as I said, your wisdom, nothing to do with years in practice, nothing to do with years in this world, but that, um, you know, your generosity will be echoed through the generations of dietitians to come. And, um, I really look forward to staying in touch with you again. Thank you so much for being such incredible voices in our profession and in the world. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited to see where these conversations are leading us. And as Ghanit reminds us that, uh, contemplation and conversations and, uh, thinking, etc etc can only um, come to light and can only make a difference when we follow that up with action so I'm going to be taking that with me as well thank you Gunit, and thank you Safina so so much again for being here and uh, yes again look forward to being in touch with you
1: thank you for providing the space for us in order to talk about these Uh, very heavy topics, uh, albeit necessary, given the current social climate. And, you know, we can all learn from each other, as you said, like, age doesn't equal wisdom. It's about, you know, really thinking and reflecting upon these things, and then putting them into action. It's been a pleasure, Fiona.
2: I would say the same, and I really look forward to other people reclaiming space, taking up space, and yeah being on these platforms and being yeah equitably compensated and having these discussions because we need to have more of it and thinking about yeah really thinking about that and what that means beyond just one conversation it leads to many conversations
0: oh yeah that would be my hope for this conversation that the three of us have had together which actually feels like where you know sitting down and having cups of tea together it really it has very much felt like that and i hope in the future that we can do that in person that would be my dream um and my second dream is that um, people who are listening are able to really let a lot of these ideas land and uh, move forward into action from contemplation so again i'm incredibly grateful to you both thank you Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.